This is Jeff Billard from Sonic Echo, and you're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Remember, keep calm and listen to audio drama, especially the Sonic Society. There you are. Yes, I know you were expecting Jack lost in the tortoise and evil David simultaneously running the tortoise, helping the Vidricks, and also trying to escape the YouTube ship. We really do have some long-running subplots, but with the holidays creeping up on us, I thought I would take a moment before our main feature, Carpin the Jew by Pulpery Theater and Pete Lutz, to read to you from the Sonic Christmas Storybook. Yes, yes, where is this? Oh, oh, here it is. Two Nights Before Christmas by S. Morgenstern. <clears throat> here we go. Twas two nights before Christmas when all through the place old Jackie was stirring with a frowned, scrunched-up face. He's a worried old guy as he scrambled to write a Christmas beginning to the Sonic show tonight. But something banged on the door like a big giant hoof and Jackie ignored it, feigning aloof. But what to his wondering eyes did appear than a no-neck squat man through the window did leer? I know yous is here, the man chomped with a sig, and yous better open up if yous value your lig. So Jackie, quite bravely, slammed the shutters and fast. He shut off the windows and drew down the sash. But the moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow did nothing to deter the jamoke down below. Open up, he declared. I ain't fooled by your ruse. St. Nick's got an offer. You can't just refuse. With a curiosity more rapid than weasels, Jack came, and he wrenched open the door and called him by name. You're Vinny, Jack said, and his heart nearly sunk to the trench-coated, fedoraed, chain-smoking lunk. So you's heard of me, the dirty old cheater did smile, and he pulled out a yellow, stain-speckled file. Old Jack stood still as Vin stepped in in a bound and licked his pencil, peering around. A real festive place, the mug Vinny said. Pity it ain't gonna remain green and red. His clothes were all crumpled and rumpled and bland, like his suit was run over by a marauding school band. He opened a book and, with a face full of vice, told Jackie his name was List Naughty, not nice. This deflated old Jack, and his face paled a bit. But Vinny slapped his back hard with a forget about it. I'm on your side, his droll mouth drawn up like a bow. We got so whole days left before the big show. See, Santa's a bit short this time of the year. But the right kind of lettuce will bring back his cheer. Old Jackie stood stunned at the scheming rat clown. He never considered a Christmas shakedown. So you're saying, Jack asked with a tremorous lip, that if I don't pay you, I get no Santa this trip? Vinny shrugged with the shruggiest shrug he did sway. I likes you fine, but he don't see it that way. Big Red, Vinny sighed with his hands in defense, is conflicted at this time of the year. And so tense. He outsources his final decisions, you see. So the ultimate choice sadly rests upon me. How much will this cost? Jackie gnawed on his cheek. Tut tut, Vinny said. These things will not speak. So the man, made as he was, scribbled a bit and thumped on Jack's chest with a big hairy mitt. There were sighs and a tear drew down old Jack's cheek, as Christmas today's just a little more sleek. With Black Fridays and boycotts of handmade wood toys replaced iPods and videos for girls and for boys. Maybe Christmas 
Jack thought, has seen better days, so he pulled out his credit card and gave it away. Then he sprang to his caddy, to his gang gave a whistle, and away the car sputtered like an oil-burning missile. And I heard him belch out through a red face scalding, Come on, all you mugs, on our way to Scott Spaulding. And here Jack stood with his feet in the snow, on the front port with the luster of midnight below. A big smile played upon old Jackie's face, and the meaning of Christmas was spilled all over the place. See, whether you're naughty or nice now don't matter. It's how you treat others before Christmas clatter. So don't let a Vinny leave your Christmas all scarred. Cut out the consumer. Chop up all your cards. Let the plastic be decorated on top the Yule tree. And credit the season as it's best meant to be. For when things are truly aloft and alight, the gift is the love you share. It's your right to cast off all the shackles and take up the fight to bring joy to those whose life is a plight. In the darkest of seasons, only you can shine bright and change all your ways from the cost of the bite of the endless things that make this season sour and trite. And instead, sing from your heart and your soul. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. This episode and the remainder of season two of Pulpery Theater are lovingly dedicated to the memory of Bill Baker. Bill, you left us, and there were so many things I wanted to ask, so many things I wanted to learn from you. You will ever be missed and ever remain in our hearts. Taken from the pages of magazines your grandfather used to hide from your grandmother, this is Pulpery Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Good evening, and thank you for joining us on Pulpery Theater. Tonight's tale is our first ever Christmas special. It's a strange story that takes place a few years before World War II, and when taken in context, is rather prophetic, and its message of humanity is just as vital today as it was when first published. The title of our story is Carpin the Jew, an unusual title for a Christmas story, but, as is usually the case with these pulpery theater plays, all will be revealed in time. Maybe you've heard of the old legend that tells of a Jewish laborer who refused to give comfort to Jesus Christ as he struggled to carry his cross up to Mount Calvary. The legend goes that this Jew was cursed to never rest, never die, to wander the living earth forever, immune from death, unkillable. Our story tonight deals with a what if. Specifically, what if that legend was true? And what if that ancient Hebrew was still wandering the earth? Carpin the Jew was taken from the September-October 1939 issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries magazine. Our tale begins in December 1938 on the sixth floor of the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco. Listen now to Carpin the Jew by Robert Neil Leith. When our Lord was wearied with the burthen of his ponderous cross and wanted to rest before the door of a particular Jew, the unfeeling wretch drove him away with brutality. The savior of mankind staggered, sinking under the heavy load, but uttered no complaint. An angel of death appeared before this Jew and exclaimed indignantly, Barbarian! Thou hast denied rest to the Son of Man, be it denied thee also, until he comes to judge the world. No! Uh, let me go! I don't! Afterwards, the newspaper headline screamed that John Albertson, 
president of Consolidated American Steel, had accidentally fallen to his death from a window of his suite in the Mark Hopkins. Four extremely important diplomats were there and swore to it. I was there too, as was Carpin the Jew. Take my word for it, it didn't happen that way. It was no accident. Probably the diplomats believed what they said and they called me a liar. They looked at me with amazement afterwards and said they'd never seen me before. That's okay. Select the truth for yourself, but I'm telling it my way. Because Brenda, she of the skin that smells of gardenias, she with the deeply exciting eyes, had a baby this morning, New Year's Eve, 1938. And I fear to watch this baby grow, for it is also the child of Carpin the Jew. And I can't help but wonder how very long a life this child of an apparent immortal will have. I met Carpin through Silverstein, the third night before Christmas Eve. Silverstein was violently shivering when I let him in, even though the San Francisco fog was not particularly cold that night. Have, have you got a drink, Jack? Why, yes, of course. Scotching glasses over there. You read the newspapers? I thought a slug that size would knock him cold, but he stayed upright, still shivering. Silverstein was state executioner at San Quentin, the guy who operated the lethal gas chamber, and I'd met him 13 months ago in a beer joint. I will meet anybody, provided he is not fighting ugly from drink, and will listen to anybody if he will talk, particularly in beer joints. I do read him. Surely you haven't forgotten that I'm a newspaper man. This morning, we tried to execute Carpin. What? Tried? I tell you, we tried at 10 a.m. on the dot. The lever did not fail. You know how the gas chamber works. I drip this little lever, see, and a cyanide egg drops into sulfuric acid, and, and that makes the gas. And within a few seconds, I knew there was something wrong. Carpin failed to squirm. He didn't choke, didn't gasp the horrible way they do. Nothing. Nothing happened whatever. And there the ghast was, rising around him. Oh. 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 Here, have some more whiskey. I watched the indicators, I tell you. Enough gas to kill a heart of elephants. We blew the chamber out, and Carpen smiled. We put the white rat in there with him, and dropped another cyanide egg, and the rat ran about frantic, squeaking, and went into convulsions and died. But Carpen... Carpen went on smiling. After twenty minutes, they took him back to his cell. I, I, I went to see him there. I hadn't really looked at Carpin in the death chamber, but I looked at him now, and so help me. I remembered him from some time long, long ago. I had never seen him during all my life, but I remembered him from some time long, long ago. They were going to try again at ten o'clock tonight. <laughs> but they did it. I looked at my clock. Twelve minutes past ten p.m. Reason told me that Silverstein could not possibly know whether the execution had been attempted a second time or not, because you can't cross the bay from San Quentin to San Francisco in anything even close to twelve minutes. Carpin, I knew, was a murderer, condemned to death for the apparently unprovoked slaying of an international banker. Why didn't they? Because I let Carpin out. I remembered Carpen the Jew from some time long, long ago. I tell you, I remembered Carpen the Jew. I figured Silverstein was nuts. 
I figured I needed to get to my phone and call for help. Nobody, I thought, could let a condemned killer out of San Quentin, except a court or the governor of California. Excuse me, just a second. Don't telephone. It's, it's not what you think. I'm in my right mind. Why have you come here, Silverstein? Because you are my friend. The only one I have. Mm-hmm. What else are you not telling me? Because Carpen said your name. Carpen is waiting outside in the hall. Can he come in? Well, that was something, all right. Perhaps you know that feeling when your spine suddenly seems to chill and the hairs rise on the back of your neck and between your shoulder blades. A condemned killer, a fugitive from the death house, waiting outside in my hall, wanting to come in. I'd never seen him before, though his features were certainly familiar to me through photographs. It was only through some circumstance unknown to me that he was acquainted with my name. Can he come in? Has he got a gun? Why, no, of course not. I think he does not need a gun. I did. I needed a gun and I had one. I got it out of my desk and put it in my right coat pocket. Open the door. Carpin the Jew was wearing an old dark suit that needed pressing. He was tall, well over six feet, gaunt with wide shoulders and long arms, and the slightest trace of a stoop, although he held his head erect. That head was entirely bald. His skin was very dark and his facial features made him look as if his blood had been peasant's blood some time long ago. He looked to be in the vigorous middle of life, although I could not then, nor did I ever, determine his precise age. But despite all the extraordinary qualities of his appearance, most striking of all, I thought, was the extraordinary deep sadness of his eyes. I thought, without being able to put my finger on the reason why, that he looked somehow unlike any other man I'd ever seen. Would you like a drink? Whiskey? Please. What else could you say to a man who had just skipped a date with death? What else could you do save offer him a drink? I haven't much time. I'm taking a plane to New York. You don't mean Washington? Now, I very carefully had not meant, nor had I said Washington. I'd been lying. Washington was correct. I had a tip on the strangest story any newspaper man could hope to get. I had the address of a Washington house. A palace, really. I probably wouldn't be able to get inside that house, but merely to try was worth a hop across a whole continent. I stared at him without saying anything. Don't bother. You've got a tip, Jack Murphy, on the strangest story that could ever come a newspaper man's way. He wasn't reading my mind. Nobody can read your mind, my reason told me. But I felt sweat coming out of my skin. How do you know that? Don't bother. Their plans have been changed. I need some money. Let's take a walk. My brain was whirling like an off-centered top. Whose plans? Carpin put one big hand out, palm upward, and ticked the names off with his fingers. The plans of five men. The American industrialist, John Albertson. Prince Taguchi of Japan. The Russian, Bakhmatev. Ilduce's man, Cagliari. And Sturmer from Nazi Germany. They won't meet in Washington. Taguchi was delayed. Taguchi arrived here yesterday morning on the SS President Cleveland. He started east immediately. No. Taguchi's brother arrived using the name of the prince for purposes of dissimulation. Prince Taguchi is coming on the Asama Maru, and that ship survived a slight collision with a barge in Tokyo Harbor. Nevertheless, the voyage was delayed 60 hours. I'll check that with my office. I rose to go to the phone. The other four men are coming west to meet Taguchi by special train, which left Washington yesterday morning. Truly important men may invest in the air, but they themselves travel on the surface of the ground and the sea. Albertson, Bakhmatev, Cagliari, and Sturmer will meet Taguchi in the Mark Hopkins Hotel on Christmas Eve. I'll check that special train, too. I am not exactly certain what you men are talking about, but Jack... You will find Carpen is right. On my way to the telephone, I caught my reflection in a mirror. My face was blotched, whitish. 
Carpin the Jew, within the realm of normal possibility, could not conceivably have known about that Washington conference. In addition to myself, only a very few other persons were supposed to know. One was a woman. John Albertson, the American host of this secret meeting, sometimes got drunk and went haywire, in secret, of course. And the person he drank with was his mistress. I'd known her several years ago in college, a blonde and strange and generous girl whom I'd loved as a youth. Never mind her name. She understands that it's important tips like the one she gave me that help a guy move up in the newspaper racket. She wasn't Brenda Carpin. Brenda, if you remember, is handsomely dark. Ah, well, even if the paper had the passenger list, it wouldn't have done any good. Checking Carpin's statement about the special train took more time. I called our Washington staff man, and he called me back an hour later. There's nothing but a rumor. A special train probably did pull out of here. You might be right. You named four guys. Not one of them can be located in Washington any place he ought to be. Thanks. I returned to my living room. Carpin looked up at me. Let's go out and walk around. Potpourri Theater will continue in a moment with Act Two of Carpin the Jew. Pulpery Theater is brought to you by the following. McClipsy Scissors. They're good enough for your barber, so they ought to be good enough for you. Drillman's Bowling Balls. We stand behind our bowling balls, because if we stood in front of them, we could get hurt or something. And Made in Heaven Cough Syrup. It tastes like hell, so we thought we'd call it something nice. Pulpery Theater now returns with the Narada Radio Company, starring in Carpin the Jew by Robert Neal Leaf. Let's go out and walk around. So I went with him. Something must have gone screwy with my reflexes and reactions that night. It's the only way I can figure it now. I was supposed to be running down this lead. The tip had been too important to trust to somebody else, so I'd set aside my mantle of temporary managing editor of the San Francisco Clarion and made plans to fly to Washington. Yet at the time, it seemed perfectly natural that I should go with Carpin, instead of doing a lot of other things. There was nothing screwy about the workings of my brain, I feel sure. I realized with perfect clarity, for example, that Carpin's freedom was itself a spectacular yarn, which I should have hopped on with both feet. But at the same time, it didn't feel as important as walking with the man. Silverstein mumbled that he had to get back to the prison, so he left us, moving away hastily with a strange motion, as though his legs were just recovering from a strange form of paralysis. There were pinpoints of water hanging in the night air and filling it. Not rain, exactly or San Francisco fog, but something between the two. We came to Powell Street and turned into the brighter city and saw people heading home, people with a few comfortable slugs of alcohol inside them coming out of places. A cop named Percival said hello to me, but didn't say anything to Carpin, didn't even look at him as he strolled past me. I turned to Carpin and asked, Why was it really? Why did you kill Franklin? Franklin had been the banker, a gambling thief who had stolen the savings, the security, and food of a hundred thousand men and women, yet had not gone to jail. I saw a look of surprise wrinkle Carpin's face. I? I did not kill him. Franklin was dead already. Jack, you would have said he was insane if you could have seen clearly the inside of his mind, but my word for it was dead. Franklin had that peculiar cunning insanity which can defeat any scientific test. I merely executed a fiend, a mind in a body which, soulless, stalked the earth. 
merely executed a walking, ruthless greed before it could do any further damage. Words formed in my mind then, words that hadn't had any real meaning to me for many a year. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But those are not the words I said. Who do you think you are, God? No, not God. Only one particular servant of his son. I'll see you later. Courage greater than mine was required here, I told myself, but somehow I didn't flee. Perhaps because Carpen had his bald-headed head tilted to one side, as though he was listening to some directing, clear, sweet, distant voice. I need some money. Let's turn up here. We left Market and walked, I think about two blocks. This street was darker than most. On our right was a skinny brick building where I remembered a speakeasy used to be. Carpen hesitated, and again he seemed to listen. It ought to be here. Ah. We couldn't see very well, but Carpen stooped suddenly and rose with a wallet. It was full of money. $357. It had three $100 bills in it, plus four tens and 17 ones. Carpen took the money out as if he'd known all the time he'd find it there. He put the bills in his pants pocket and tossed the wallet, with all its other contents into the gutter. What about the guy who lost all that? He won't be hurt. You and I have three days and two nights to pass. How about beer? I wanted to get away from Carpen more than ever then, but the midnight examiner was on the street, and when we returned to market I bought a copy. When I looked at the headlines, I realized I could not leave Carpen at all. The line of black type screamed, Carpen executed in second try. On its front page, the examiner had a picture too. A picture of the man who even then walked Market Street at my left elbow. Carpen's picture. The paper said Carpen had been gassed to death, yet here he was, walking. Carpen executed in second try. I put a hand out and gripped his arm hard, and it was a real arm, all right, the flesh firm and muscular under the worn cloth of his coat, and my sense of logic was wildly crying out that this entire happening could not be true, yet it was true. It was blackest magic, yet there is no magic upon the face of the earth, and everything has a natural explanation if you can only find it. Now I'm not a religious man, and I know no more than any other what may be the awful abilities of the human spirit. Abruptly, I found my wild reason wondering how much one man might learn of exotic but scientific arts such as hypnotism, if he but had the time. A great deal, I thought. If. Carpenter executed in second trial. Executed in second trial. Executed in second trial. Executed in second trial. Second trial. Second trial. So much learning that he might walk out of a death house, leaving the witnesses to watch an execution and even a burial which did not really occur. If, if he had the time, if he had centuries of time of life, centuries to study. It came to me then with a reasonableness that I still do not understand, that Carpen the Jew was no normal or ordinary man. Already tonight he had used up his earthly time, yet here he was, alive and walking at my side. Here is a place. Let's go in. You don't want beer. You've got to see your wife. It will not be considerate. Cruel, but you're right. Come on. Me? Yes. You must stay with me these three days. You must stay with me until the ambassadors of the Great Ones have met, and you must see what happens then. Nobody will believe you, but you must write it down. Carpet was right, again. That had been the tip from John Albertson's mistress, that the Great Ones planned to start the killing again. The ambassadors of these great powers would meet, fix a schedule of dates, determine last details of an agreement which doubtless had been in the works for months. Write it down? You could bet your living lungs that I would write the story down if I could only get it. 
A few moments of silence went by, then Carpin said without any preamble. Machiavelli was quite a guy. Startled, all I could say was, sure. Machiavelli once remarked that if a prince, a dictator, a despot of any sort, felt himself tottering, the only certain way to restore the power of his despotism was foreign war. Arouse the patriotism of stupid men in any unworthy and needless cause. Wave the flag and beat the drums. A new feeling of even greater strangeness passed through me. Not from Carpin's meaning, but from the arrangement of his words. And I heard my strained voice asking, Did you get that out of a book, Carpin? Why, no. No? Machiavelli, a Florentine philosopher, a writer, an advisor to potentates, who had lived between the 15th and 16th centuries. A cold-blooded priest of violence and subjection. How would a man, living, know what such a man would have said, unless he got it from a book? Or, my mind cried out, unless that long-dead man had spoken to him directly, in person, before he died. You knew Machiavelli? Who are you, Carpin? But he didn't reply, and I was glad he didn't because I felt with abrupt terror that I already knew who he was. I remembered an age-old, persistent, never-explained legend from human history. The tale of how a tormented man once struggled along a grievous, dusty road bearing his cross. How he sought to pause and rest a moment upon the doorstep of a hut, but was denied any pause. And of how he uttered a calm and terrible curse upon the Jewish laborer living there. A curse that the Jew must never rest, not even in death but must wander the living earth forever, immune from death, unkillable. You better go home now, buddy, and sleep it off. When a guy starts yelling and there's nobody else around, he better go on home. The cop didn't look at Carpin. I think now he didn't know Carpin was there. Couldn't see him at all. Probably the cop thought I was tight, but I wasn't. I hadn't had anything alcoholic in 24 hours. Taxi! At an apartment house on Taylor Street, Brenda opened her door. She was Carpin's young wife and she spoke not a word. She only moved within the circle of his arms. And I felt acutely embarrassed. So complete was their kiss. Her great love for Carpin, her entire sweet and passionate spirit came up into her eyes as she stepped into his arms. Come in. Come in and sit down. <laughs> Wasn't until many days later, when everything was over, that I remembered Brenda had asked no questions, had requested no explanation of the bewildering fact of his freedom. Although she had obviously been weeping, I think now she had never believed Carpin had really died, nor would die, no matter what was said. And I looked at Brenda and suddenly saw a long line of similar types as the line of these beautiful, classically featured women receded into the distance of my mind, they each seemed to be attired in clothing of earlier decades, then of earlier centuries, then of millennia ago. Carpin, how long has this been going on? How long do you think? My spine felt like ice as I said, 2,000 years. You will have many wives waiting for you, Carpin, and each will be a copy of the others. I... Hope they will not wait. I've instructed Brenda she must not. What little time you've had for me, Carpin, will always be in my heart. I am going to have your child. It won't be like me. This child will eventually die when his time has come. I rose to my feet without realizing it, and a scream welled up inside my throat, because now I felt that I had to know. Listen, who are you? Why, Millie Coppin, a Jew. I stayed with the Carpins until Christmas Eve. I slept on a couch and thought not once of the office. My spirit was filled with a mounting, swelling dread, not for Brenda, because I knew she would be all right no matter what happened to Carpin but of what Carpin might do when the ambassadors assembled. 
We left Brenda's apartment only once during that period, and then to visit an exclusive men's store. We must be outfitted with the finest evening clothes possible. Carpen, just why are we doing this? I, too, shall be an ambassador of a great one, and we must do him honor. We must not appear less well-provisioned than the others. Afterward, when I had written it down and thought it over, it sounded unnatural, stilted, a trifle absurd. But I wrote it down the way he said it, and that was it. I, too, shall be an ambassador of the Great One. Each mealtime, food and wine would appear on Brenda's table. She refused to permit any contribution from me, and Carpin offered none. And then Christmas Eve arrived. We set forth, Carpin and I, tail-coated, top-hatted, caped and gloved. All day, Brenda had been very cheerful, then inexpressibly sad by turn. She kissed Carpin goodbye, a kiss even more intense than that first one I had unwillingly witnessed, and held him off by his shoulders, looking into his eyes. You won't be back, Carpin. No, my dearest. I have so much to do. Let's take a short break. And then we'll return with Act 3 of Carpin the Jew, tonight's presentation of Polpourri Theatre, starring the Narada Radio Company. Whether you're a professional chef, a fry cook, or a cookie-making grandma, you're going to love the Turnbuckle Television Cartel's newest show, Cuisine, the TV Food Game. Hosted by celebrity restaurant critic and gourmand Buffy Mae Updike, Cuisine is a half hour of thrilling questions and answers about exotic dishes, family recipes, and famous restaurants' menus. And now, Marge Slobotnik of Haley's Mistake, Illinois. For $100,000, what was the color of the cover for the lunch menu at Bob's Not Bad Barbecue, Billings, Montana, in the spring of 1974? Woo! Was it green, red, blue, or brown? No help from the audience, please. Marge, I need your answer, dear. Was it green, red, blue, or brown. Woo! Oh my! It looks as if our Marge has fainted. Well, that's the way things go. And it looks as if our giant jackpot prize will carry over to next week and will be a whopping $150,000. What? Oh, sorry. Ugh. It's not. Uh, I mean to say, uh, the, the prize isn't a hundred and fifty thou. It's a hundred and five dollars. That's Cuisine, the TV food game. Every morning at 8.30, proudly sponsored by Salami, the king of cold cuts on TTC. Polpourri Theatre returns with Act 3 of Carpin the Jew by Robert Neal Lee. And our storyteller, Jack Murphy, takes up the tale again. Carpin and I left the apartment of his wife, Brenda, and we set out for the Mark Hopkins on foot. The night was crisp, clear, chill. The stars shone bright and a sliver of moon hung in the night sky. We did not hasten. How old are you, Jack? 34. Didn't you know that already? The last war ended in 1918. You were... 14. A Boy Scout? Yeah. I sold Liberty Bonds going from one office to the next. I had a Boy Scout uniform. I was a runt for my age. I had a lot of badges, including an Eagle badge, and I sold a lot of bonds. You don't know how it was then. The next men never remember, never know till they see new killing for themselves. A few of their fellows turn into animals, ruthless, themselves safe, slavering with power lust. The few start the bands, the flags, 
Wave the flags, blow the trumpets, beat the drums. A few start the new men, the next crop who don't remember, again into the killing. No, you're a new one, and you don't remember. Nothing of the dawn, and young men whimpering or savage, in mud and filth and vermin, hungry, afraid, awaiting zero, awaiting the dreadful top tick of a watch, then scrambling up, slipping and scrambling in mud, the air screaming and bursting, moving to death, to dreadful torn flesh and shattered bone, themselves become animals when they ought to be at home, safe, working, loving their lovely young women, children, and dogs in front of a fire. Music and warmth and peace and wine and sunlight, all gone. What are you going to do, Carpin? Your grammar is punk. He didn't reply, just looked up at the Mark Hopkins. We had arrived. We entered an elevator and Carpin said, Sixth floor. Sir, you can't go there, sir. You must have made a mistake. No mistake. Sixth floor. Carpin's eyes seemed to glow. His chin was a rock. The frightened elevator boy let us out at the sixth floor. The carpeted corridors contained perhaps two dozen men of assorted nationalities. Well-dressed but tough and hard-eyed men for all that. Secret police, I thought. To my astonishment, we walked directly through the swarming guards, and not one tried to stop us. We might have been invisible. I, th I think we were. Carpin took a key from one of his pockets and opened a door. I followed him through one room that was completely empty. No rugs, no furniture. Into a second. This second room was very big. At a long table, the conference of the ambassadors was already in session. Carpin and I selected two chairs against the nearest wall and sat down. Nobody turned ahead. Nobody, in fact, seemed even to be aware of our presence until Carpin acted hours later. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Each of you will have the opportunity to speak, to describe your plans. But let me tell you of this first. As you know, gentlemen... Right now, John Albertson was speaking. Later, the others spoke, sweated, bargained, spoke again. I think my mouth must have dropped open at some point and stayed that way. Because afterward... I needed a lot of water. Bakhmatev was there, representative of the new dictator of the Soviet Union. Kalieri was there from Italy. Prince Taguchi, representing the Emperor of Japan. And Sturmer, a tall German with a monocle, a horse face and utterly blank blue eyes. Each man acting not for his people, but for his master. John Albertson, however, since the United States was not a dictatorship, was the ambassador for an oligarchy, a group of men who controlled every facet of American industry, trade, and commerce. Cunning men who understood the waving of flags and the beating of drums for profit and personal power. Their language was English, spoken in the cultured and conversational tones of gentlemen. So it wasn't their tones that dropped my mouth open. It was the things they said, their terrible, calm meanings. Of course, I had known that no modern major conflict ever occurs by accident. Definite agreements are made between all powers which may be affected. Later, any conflict may get out of hand, but its beginning is always a matter of premeditation, and not of passion. Yet I had never watched the machinery mesh. The ambassadors of the great detest newspaper men whom they cannot control. Yet here I was, beside Carpin the Jew and the ambassadors in cultured voices were calmly and cunningly trading in violence, in the lands, the wealth, the human lives and blood of other nations. They calmly estimated how many of their own men would be slaughtered upon the various fronts of attack. Comrade Stalin is an immediate necessity. Lately, to use the American phrase, the handwriting... The presence of Bakhmatev surprised me the most. A communist making parley with the fascists of Germany and Japan? I recalled how viciously the fascists and the communists had fought each other in Spain. 
But this parley was not to avoid blood and death, but to cause them, and to agree upon the details of their manufacture. The Russian people have demanded that no more foodstuffs be exported from the USSR. Two decades of labor have produced tremendous crops, crops that have been sold in exchange for machinery that our people might use, but certainly cannot eat. This demand from our people has been so ugly that we have granted it for the present. But war, gentlemen, only war will lift the minds of our people off their bellies. Signori Mussolini, il duce, sends his regards, gentlemen. The oil in Ethiopia, which has served my country so well in recent years, is running dry, and so we must explore the possibility of... I bring you the Führer's highest regards. As you may know, Herr Hitler has retaken Czechoslovakia for the fatherland, but he needs flames round the earth before he moves to regain our lost and more distant colony. Sends his blessings, my dear friends. You are aware, I am sure, that Japan has been flooding the markets all over the world with manufactured goods and underselling all competitors. But she is unfortunately going bankrupt in the process. For the war is needed to keep our emperor's people whipped up to our proper frenzy of obedience. And in America, all the businessmen were desperate from taxes and the insane spending of the government. But America still had no dictator. Yet John Albertson thought that war might create a dictatorship. And in any event, war would bring monstrous profits to the steel industry. Sturmer, Albertson, Calieri, and Bakhmatev agreed. Prince Taguchi as well. As I watched them, I felt my gorge rise. These men were safe enough from their standpoint. They would never be within a hundred miles of a firing line. This whole thing was as impersonal to them as a chess game. It would be personal only to the hundreds of thousands of younger men who would get the bullets in their guts. And then John Albertson was speaking again. The bands and the flags are ready, gentlemen. The geniuses of public relations are ready as well. Nothing will be simpler to our trained propagandists, to the oligarchy-controlled press, to auditors and politicians under our sway, I say nothing will be simpler than to hurl the United States into war on either side. Carpin bent toward me and his face was stiff. You have heard. We now look upon a man who was already dead. All here are drunk with power, with ambition. But only John Albertson has already died, a greed-torn man who must sell bullets and armor plate. I watched with fascination as Carpin rose from his chair. The startled, bewildered faces of the diplomats turned to him as though wondering how, in the name of highest heaven, any man save themselves could be here, in this room, a room now guarded by secret police, and secret strong-armed men from each of their separate nations. And now I watched as Carpin stalked slowly toward Albertson, and I saw Carpin's hands deliberately close around the industrialist's throat while I and the other four men in the room stared in stunned horror. Carpin lifted the other man off the floor by his throat, 
while Albertson tried desperately to claw at Carpin's hands with his own. The two men moved slowly in a strange dance to a window, and when they were there, Carpin deliberately removed one strangling hand and got the window open. Then he looked down upon Albertson sadly, and I thought, compassionately, and with the swift movements of an automaton, Carpin lifted Albertson high, held him squirming and screaming, thus the short moment, and flung him into space. Gentlemen, I give you a promise. Each of you is powerful. Not so powerful as the great dictators whom you represent, but still, each of you wields colossal influence in his own land. I promise you that if the wars occur which you have agreed upon tonight, each of you shall die in ways far more horrible than the way you have seen John Albertson die. I say to you, ye shall not kill. Take my message to your masters. Should this war occur, to each dictator I also shall find my way, and I shall come to kill. Carpin turned and left the room without haste. I was right behind him. The street throbbed with excitement, of course, and the police and an ambulance had arrived. But we walked unimpeded past the police, past the mashed, broken object that once was John Albertson, and went down into the town. It was Sunday morning. It was Christmas morning. Freshly dressed, quiet people were going into the churches. I can do so little. You've done plenty lately. One man in all the world. Why don't the others help? Some of them do. Carpin now turned my way, and there was nothing mystic nor supernormal in the sardonic gaze he fixed on me. Hear me. This is the United States of America. I've been here many times. You have a constitution, the highest law of the land. Adopt an amendment. Say that each member of Congress who votes for any war, or who fails to vote against it, shall upon formal declaration of such war automatically lose his office, that immediately he shall be compelled, regardless of age or physical competence, to become an infantry private, ineligible for promotion, ineligible for furlough even if wounded, and assigned to front-line combat until dead or until the war ends. Send also to the front any president who signs a declaration of war. Adopt that one simple basic law. Challenge other nations into providing likewise for their own leaders. And then you wouldn't have very many more wars. Carpin turned away from me and cocked his head to one side and again I got that curious impression that he was listening to some voice which I myself could not hear. Finally, he turned back to face me and said, But the nations will not be permitted to do it. The great rulers are never the ones who fight. Jack Murphy, give me your hand. I have so little time. Goodbye. Carpin? Carpin! The Narada Radio Company returns in just a moment with the conclusion of Carpin the Jew. This is Pulpery Theater. When you're in the market for fine antiques, think of Archie Ugly's Emporium of Antiquities in the Morley Safer Mall in Toronto, Canada. Archie Ugly's is known for its unusual pieces, its rare finds, and its obscure, never-before-seen items from strange, exotic locales. Wander through the elaborate displays at Archie Ugly's Emporium of Antiquities, and you'll feel as if you're wandering through a museum of fine art. And that's because many of the pieces were originally in a museum.
Yeah, it's right. Archie nicked him. Bloke could steal his own mother she wasn't tied down, right? Ha! So, stay away from Archie Ooglies if you know what's good for you. What? What? Oh, right. <coughs> um, that's Archie Ooglies Emporium of Antiquities, right next to Harvey Rooster's Action Jewelers, the Marley Safer Mall, downtown Toronto. What? Oh, sod off. We return you now to San Francisco in 1938. It is actually almost 1939, New Year's Eve. Jack Murphy, the man who followed Carp and the Jew to that fateful meeting at the Mark Hopkins, takes up the story again. In the days that followed, the other ambassadors called Albertson's plunge merely a tragic accident. Well, perhaps they really do not remember what they saw Carpen do and say at least not in their conscious minds. But each of these four representatives, I notice, has retired now to a private and sedentary life. And as Carpet and I reached the street, the paved hilltop where the Mark Hopkins sits, it didn't even occur to me to warn him that for this latest crime he must surely die. For I understood he would never die, so long as men lived upon the earth. The San Quentin gas chamber? That had been, probably his last forlorn hope of death. I have so little time. Goodbye. So little time. All eternity he had. Yet Carpin the Jew was pressed and had to hurry. And Brenda's son was born today. Carpin's son. And although Carpin had assured her the child would not be like him, I can't help wondering. I pray it will not, because Carpin, the last I saw of him, was walking away in Christmas sunlight while bells tolled, repeating that another child, a Christ, had been born. Walking down a city sidewalk, through the moving crowds in their fine holiday clothing, stalking the world, himself one symbol of his entire deep and peaceful and homeless race. One lonely man, accursed forever, to the choking task of all mankind's salvation. And so ends Carpin the Jew, our very special, very unusual Christmas program for Pulpery Theater's second season. Featured in our cast, Christian Ferris as Jack Murphy, Jack J. Ward as Silverstein, Pete Lutz as Carpin the Jew, and John Albertson, Tanya Malayevic as Brenda Carpin, Dana Gonzalez as Bakhmatev and Kalieri, and Skeeter Ullman as Taguchi. With additional voices by Kyle Bauer, Nancy Gogler, Bubba Jones, and Pete Lutz. Your announcer was Lisa Ayala. Carpin the Jew appeared in the September-October 1939 issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries magazine. It was written by Robert Neal Leaf and was adapted for Pulpery Theater by Pete Lutz, who also directed and produced this program. On behalf of Mr. Lutz, and the entire Narada Radio Company. We wish you a very happy holiday season and invite you to tune in again next time for another exciting episode of Polpourri Theater. Additional voice characterizations by Eileen Elizondo as Buffy Mae Updike and Pete Lutz as everybody else. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator, and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulpourri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio Production.
Dear society members, I'm just writing to you to thank you on behalf of David and myself for 10 Christmases. 10 holidays of cheer and solstice magic. No matter how you celebrate this time of year, I know as we end 2014, I find myself reflecting back on not only our 10th anniversary, but the decade of shows that have made it through our feed. I'm so very grateful for all our partners who have shared their incredibly diverse and wonderful stories here with us. But I can't help but feel that the so many amazing writers and producers, directors and actors have all been instrumental in any growth I've had as a writer in this medium. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I hope that you feel that you've gotten from the Sonic Society over the years half as much as I feel I've received from your letters, comments, and support. If you have, I'd like to beg your indulgence for one small present. I thought about it recently, and all I would really like for Christmas is one thing. Just to know you're out there, and you like what we're doing. So if you've been a long-time listener, or you found the Sonic Society recently, this is all you really need to do to make David's and my Christmas complete. Go to iTunes, find the Sonic Society, and write us a favorable review. That's it. Send us a little holiday greeting so that we make this season the very best for the 10th anniversary. Because if enough of you do so, there could be just another Christmas miracle out there by letting a whole pile of new folks know that the Sonic Society is around, that audio drama is alive and well, and there are worlds upon worlds of stories that they have yet to hear. So once again, just let the world know that we're here and that you too are one of the Sonic Society. Go to iTunes and let your voice be heard. It doesn't have to be long and involved. Just a little note would make a huge difference. Regardless, may you, your friends, and your family have the very, very best of the season. And thank you. Thank you so much for all the years, all the shows, and all the memories. With gratitude and love, Christmas 2014. Jack. Sonic Society Season 10 is written and produced by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music provided by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society through Creative Commons licensing. The Sonic Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Apparently you enjoy listening to audio dramas since you're hearing this message. I'll keep it short so you can get back to the fun stuff. If you would like to see and experience how all these stories, voices, sound effects, and music come together to create theater of the mind... 
Make plans to visit the Modern Audio Drama Convention in Halifax, Nova Scotia, July 24th through 26, 2020. Meet the creators. Find out how to write, record, mix, sweeten, and produce movies that play in your head. See what the voices you hear actually look like. We never look like we sound. For all the details, visit madcon.com. That's M-A-D, as in modern audio drama, then dash, as in dash on over, then con, as in convention, duh, then dot, as in it'll be the most fun you've had in a while, period, then com, as in come on over, we'll love to see you. Madcon, your ears and brain will thank you.